Are you a hybrid athlete who wants to learn more about how to combine your strength and endurance training? Well, I've written a new book, The Science of Hybrid Training. In this book, I provide insight into the misconceptions surrounding strength and endurance training by distilling the past 50 years of research and drawing on the conversations I had with great scientists, coaches, and athletes on the Progress Theory podcast. This book is essential reading for hybrid athletes and coaches who are looking to understand the key training variables and their effect on the simultaneous development of strength and endurance performance. Get your copy now, available to buy from Amazon. Now, let's get into the show. Hello and welcome to The Progress Theory, where we discuss how to implement scientific principles for optimizing human performance. My name is Dr. Phil Price, and on today's episode, we are joined by a molecular exercise physiologist from the University of California, Professor Keith Barr. One of the mechanisms behind the interference effect when hybrid training is this idea of molecular signaling theory. The idea is that endurance training activates the molecular pathway AMPK, which then inhibits the molecular pathway mTOR. This potentially can inhibit strength and hypertrophy adaptations. But what does this all mean? Well, in this episode, Professor Barr and I discuss the mechanisms behind the AMPK and mTOR pathway, how they get activated, how endurance training may inhibit strength adaptations, and what we can do with our programming to try and avoid this.
as always, follow and subscribe to The Progress Theory on Instagram and YouTube and check out all of our other episodes. Here is Professor Keith Barr. Hi, Keith. How are you? I'm doing very well, Phil. Thanks for having me. No, thank you so much for coming on to The Progress Theory. This is a particular topic which I've wanted to delve into for quite some time because I remember we had a muscle physiology module at our university and it was always the molecular physiology that was the most difficult for the students. And when I'm reading through the molecular side of the interference effect and concurrent training, there's definitely a few areas that I'm like, oh, I need to you know, really speak to a proper expert on this. And I've been recently reading your paper using molecular biology to maximize concurrent training. Uh, and that's what I think, well, I'm going to contact you to see if you'd like to come on to the progress. So thank you so much for, for coming on. Yeah, no worries. It's a, it's a pleasure and it's a, it's a fun topic to talk about. Yeah, definitely. Before we get into the topic, do you want to just give a bit of an overview of yourself for anyone that might not have heard of your work before? Sure. So, so I'm a professor of molecular exercise physiology here at the University of California, Davis. Um, we're in Northern California, about an hour northeast of San Francisco in what was in the past Wintu te- uh, lands. It was the ancestral home of the Patwin people. It's a beautiful place and it's a wonderful place to do research. And my research is basically focused on how exercise, nutrition, and, and age, as well as disease to some degree, uh, are affecting musculoskeletal performance, whether that's muscle, tendon, or other types of musculoskeletal tissues. And so I did my PhD, and during my PhD, I discovered a central regulator of the response to resistance exercise, which is a protein called mTOR complex 1, It seems to be important for how resistance exercise and nutrition increase muscle protein synthesis and and increase muscle mass in response to exercise. And then I got a chance to do a postdoc with Professor John Halsey at at Washington University in St. Louis, who's one of the top endurance exercise people in the world at the time. And uh, there I discovered a a gene called PGC1-alpha that was uh, upregulated in response to exercise. And it was specifically a shorter version of the PGC1-alpha that was made following exercise. And that version of PGC1-alpha is is responsible for a lot of the endurance adaptations that we see during endurance exercise. And so it was a kind of a natural thing to then start combining the strength and endurance, looking at stuff that Bob Hickson had done in the 80s to really try and figure out a little bit as to what the molecular mechanism underlying the effect that, that Bob had seen, which was that when you do strength and endurance together, your strength adaptations are less um, than when you do just your strength alone. And so we and a lot of other people spent a lot of time trying to figure out the molecular underlines of that. Now, that's, that's really impressive. I didn't know you actually did your work under Halosi, and um, that, that, is, that is really cool because I've been reading Hickson's work, and obviously I know that Hickson's... Hickson worked with Halosi as well. And then he started his lab. And the first paper that he did was based on the training sessions that he did with Halosi. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's right. I tell that story in a couple of different papers that I've written to kind of give a little historical context to, to the concurrent training effect, simply because Bob was a classic power lifter. He was a huge individual. But like anybody, you want to make you want to make a good impression on your new boss and his mm. boss was an endurance guy. So he started doing endurance and 
his strength and mass was going down and he couldn't ex- understand it because he was training just as hard. It's a really, the story is actually really important for understanding the concurrent training effect mm. because you wouldn't necessarily see it as extraordinarily as what Hickson sees if you just were an average exerciser who liked to do a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Yeah, definitely. I, I've always liked that story because I like it when research ideas come around from things you do in real life. So obviously he was doing suddenly different types of training and then how he was feeling made him develop a research question and it led to a whole new line of scientific inquiry. I think that's a really cool story. <laughs> Regarding, you mentioned mTOR Complex 1. I know that a few people that may be relatively familiar with concurrent training might have heard of the term mTOR or mTOR C1 or the term AMPK, but don't necessarily know how they act or what type of exercise uh, creates the response of each one. Just to kind of start off, do you want to give a brief overview of what each one is and how they may interact with each other? So mTOR complex one is a Obviously, from the name, it's a complex of proteins. So it's a bunch of different proteins that come together, and it serves as a kinase. And what a kinase is, is an enzyme that decorates other proteins with little phosphate groups. And what a phosphate group is, is it's a negatively charged little tiny molecule. And what you do is you put that negative charge onto a neutral amino acid, serine, threonine, or tyrosine. And when you put a negative charge onto a neutral amino acid, you're going to change the charge of the protein. And what would happen is if you have a neutral amino acid that's kind of sitting together close to some negative amino acids, when you phosphorylate that neutral amino acid, now you've got a negative close to a negative. And what happens is it pushes the protein apart. And now what you've done is you've created a different shape to the protein. And if that happens around, say, the active site of a protein, Now that enzyme is more active because the opening is more open. So the things that it's going to act on, so the the small molecules that that protein is going to act on, whether it's to metabolize them, whether it's to change their activity or shape, now you've opened up this area and now the protein can be more active. So mTOR complex one is a kinase. Other kinases that are important for exercise are things like the AMP activated protein kinase or AMP kinase. And that one, as the name suggests, is activated by how much AMP or ADP there is versus how much ATP there is. So when we're sitting at rest, we've got lots of ATP in our muscles and we have very little AMP or ADP. If we were to sprint or we were to do some really hard activity where we're using energy faster than we can produce it, now what happens is ADP and AMP rise ATP will drop a little bit, and now the protein AMP kinase will bind to the ADP or AMP, and that'll change its ability to become active. And then it can decorate proteins with these little phosphate groups that make those other proteins negative. And a lot of the proteins that it makes negative are proteins that are designed in order to increase our ability to make energy. So things like acetyl-CoA carboxylase, that regulates malonyl-CoA, that allows us to get more fat and use more fat as a fuel. It also will regulate proteins like that regulate glucose uptake into the muscle. So what it's doing is it's trying to, in AMP kinase, you've got a kinase that's trying to increase our ability to make new energy. And in mTOR complex one, you've got a protein that's trying to build 
the, the tissue. And so what it's trying to do is it's trying to decrease breakdown of things and increase the production of new protein. And so one is trying to drive the cell bigger. The other is trying to make it so that we can make more energy. They don't really get along very well because if we're in an energy stress because we don't have enough energy, we don't want to build our cells bigger because we can't even get enough energy at that size that we are. So if we build bigger, that means we're going to be in more energy stress. So in a lot of different cell types, AMP kinase can block some of the activities that mTOR complex one has. And in this way, what you get is you get this regulation of how much nutrient or how much energy we're producing and how big the cell is. And so that's kind of just a little bit about those two. Yeah, that's really interesting how they are so different to the point where you can really understand why one might try and limit the other. is isn't just, oh, this is activated, so it's actually trying to block that. It's trying to block it for a physiological reason as such. How are these activated? You, you kind of touched on a few issues. So one might be activated more by endurance training, but obviously there's a few factors about that endurance training which might activate it more. And then the same for resistance training. So with mTOR complex one, the resistance training is probably going to activate that pathway. Endurance, endurance training is going to activate the AMPK pathway. What kind of other factors may influence the, the magnitude of the activation? Yeah, so for mTOR complex one, the thing that activates it, there are two things that, or there are three things that really activate it. One is growth factors like insulin IGF-1. Those work through receptors and activate mTOR through this protein called AKT. So you get this kind of successive phosphorylation, successive kinases decorating other proteins with, with these negative charges and successive one turns on the next one, turns on the next one, and then eventually you get to mTOR complex one. So the growth factors can do it. The other ways that you can do it are uh, amino acids. Okay. And amino acids, the way that they work is they basically will take mTOR, which is normally a protein that's not held within any certain um, area of the cell, and it's going to bring it together with the protein that is the activator of mTOR. So what amino acids do is bring mTOR to its activator. What growth factors do is they actually move an inhibitor away from that activating protein. Okay, okay so what, what growth factors do is they they work on this little activator protein. And the activator protein is like a little brother in a relationship here. And the big brother is always kind of holding him down and, and battering him and keeping him inactive and keeping him so that he can't do anything. And what the growth factors do is they just basically take the big brother away and they put him into a different room. And now the little brother can do what the little brother is supposed to do, which is in the right circumstances, turn on mTOR. But if there's no amino acids, it's not going to see very much mTOR near it. And so you've got an active activator, but it's got nothing to activate. So the amino acids then come together, bring mTOR to that activator, and now you can get fully active mTOR. So you need the two signals. You need a growth factor signal, so insulin or IGF-1, and you need amino acids. But the third signal is, is load or or resistance exercise. And when you get load across a muscle fiber, it cuts out the first part of the activation of mTOR by growth factors. So it takes a shortcut and it goes immediately to moving the big brother away from the activator. 
Okay, and so Troy Hornberger's done some beautiful work to try and show how that works. But basically what it is, is instead of having to go through this growth factor where it's going to go through this protein AKT and it's going to move the, the big brother away from the activator, what it does is it just goes directly. And it's a one-step process where you can move the brother away. Okay, so what that means is that if you're doing a lot of resistance exercise, you're getting load across all of these muscle fibers. Then if you add extra growth factors, like if you inject yourself with IGF-1, no benefit at all. Because IGF-1 is coming in and trying to do the same thing that your resistance exercise has already done. And that's why you don't get any more growth if you add IGF-1 to a resistance exercise training plan. The component of activating mTOR, it's going to be activated by resistance exercise and amino acids, or it's going to be activated when you're not doing resistance exercise by growth factors in amino acids. Okay? okay. So that that covers that part. Mm -hmm. And then we already talked about how AMP kinase can be activated. Yeah. Is that why leucine is such an important component? I know from some of your research, you've really advocated the, you, if you did have to train on the same day, for example, trying to get in some form of leucine-rich foods to try and help with that uh, mTOR C1 pathway, along with the resistance training, of course. Yeah, absolutely. So what, what leucine does is it, there's actually a protein within your cells that actually reg, can, recognizes just leucine. So if you give it isoleucine, very similar, just slight difference in the amino acid, it doesn't recognize it. That protein doesn't recognize it. And when it binds to leucine, what happens is now you set in motion the whole ability for mTOR to move to its, to its activator. So the only way that we're moving mTOR to its activator is when leucine comes in, or there's a few other amino acids that work as well, but they work less effectively. So they're less effective that leucine is the most effective amino acid. And what leucine can do is it goes in and it removes this inhibition on mTOR so that mTOR can move to its activator and it can be fully activated. And so, yes, leucine-rich proteins are really, really important for building muscle. And one of the things that we think is happening with concurrent training is that it becomes harder for leucine to turn on muscle protein synthesis through mTOR. And so what you have to do is you have to use a higher percentage or a higher amount of leucine to get the same activation of mTOR that you would normally get with a lower amount if you weren't doing concurrent training. Okay. So would you recommend supplementation or is that leucine you can, if you, even if you have to increase its amount because you're doing concurrent training, can you still get that from regular diet or would you recommend some form of supplementation to help with that? You can easily get it as long as you're paying attention, what we will tend to do is we'll tend to move the training sessions. But it all depends on what your calorie budget is for a day. So if you don't have a, a low calorie budget because you're trying to lose weight or maintain a very low weight, then yeah, you can do it through foods. It's just going to bring up your calorie count. The great thing about supplements or supplemental protein especially is that if you get a good protein supplement, it's going to have basically in 20 grams of protein, it'll have eight, you know, it's going to have 80 calories because that's the only thing that's in there. And so what you're just looking for is you're looking for a leucine-rich protein. And normally what we would do is we would take in about 0.25 grams per kilogram body weight if we're doing one aspect of our body. But if we're going to be doing our legs, and that's the only thing we're really lifting because maybe we're, we're a cyclist or somebody who really needs to have big, strong legs, 
or a sprint cyclist, for example, that is mostly going to go to our legs. So we would normally take in 0.25 grams per kilogram body weight every three hours throughout the day. If you're also doing lots of endurance work to build your endurance, now what we would shift is we would shift up to a higher amount, more towards about 0.4 to 0.5 grams per kilogram body weight per meal frequently throughout the day to allow optimal activation of mTOR complex one and the downstream signals to increase protein synthesis. So you've got these metabolic pathways. How long do they last post the session? So I've heard some recommendations around how AMPK can remain elevated or that pathway can remain activated for around three hours post-session, whereas for mTOR, it takes a bit longer. So obviously, these guidelines are affecting people's uh, training decisions or their programming decisions. Yeah, how long, how long do these pathways remain active and what kind of factors could actually influence how long they remain active for? Yeah, so a lot of the metabolic pathways, the things like ATP levels versus ADP and AMP, they're regulated really quickly. So they return to high ATP, low ADP, and AMP very quickly, within a half hour. So you would normally see AMP kinase activity come down to almost baseline by about a half hour. You might see a little bit of it that's maybe translocated or moved to a different part of the cell, and that maybe that cell movement is still present up until maybe three hours. But most of the activation of AMP kinase is, is back to normal within 30 minutes to an hour. The same thing is true for other endurance-based kinases. So when we, every time we contract our muscle, we activate the calcium, we increase calcium 100-fold, and that activates the calcium-activated proteins within our body, including the proteins that allow muscle contraction, but also these little kinases called CAM kinase or calcium calmodulin kinases. And they'll go up during exercise, and they're really important for endurance adaptations. And then they'll come back down within 30 minutes to an hour. And so the activity of these proteins goes up and down really, really quickly. Like AMP kinase in the first paper done by Will Winder and Graham Hardy, they put rats on a treadmill and AMP kinase went up to maximum within five minutes. And then it came back down after exercise. That wasn't in the first paper, but it does come back down to, to pre-exercise levels within about 30 minutes to an hour. Wow. If we contrast that with resistance exercise, strength exercise, the activation of AMP, or in this case, uh, mTOR complex one by resistance exercise is actually the longest known way of activating mTOR complex one. So when we eat a meal and we activate mTOR complex one with insulin and amino acids coming together to move the inhibitor away from that little protein that activates mTOR and move mTOR to that little activator, those two signals together, that's those two signals together last 30 minutes to an hour within your body. When we do resistance exercise, at least in model organisms like rats, what we would find is we find that still by, you know, 18 hours after exercise, mTOR complex one activity is still higher than it was if you didn't exercise. And that's really important because now what we've got is we've got a, a signal that we want to go on for a long time. And we've got a signal that we like to have on, but then it's going to come off really quickly. And so, yeah, that's going to affect how we program um, optimizing strength and endurance building together. So with the recommendations around endurance training, or say you did a, an endurance session, 
and you're trying to make sure that you have enough time to recover before you do the next session say it is some form of resistance training likely if it's within or further away than an hour it's likely not going to be too affected by the ampk pathway it's usually because of residual fatigue would you say yeah, say if you did endurance in the morning and then weights in the evening. Yeah, it's going to be residual fatigue. Residual fatigue. Okay. Yeah. So, but I really want to make it clear that there's a whole lot of what we call molecular breaks. And so molecular breaks are something that we termed for things that decrease our ability to increase our muscle mass. Evolutionarily, muscle is a very costly tissue. So if you're a big bulky person with a lot of muscle mass, you need more calories than if you're a small person. And one of the ways that we've made it so that we're better evolutionarily equipped, so we made it really hard to grow muscle, it takes lots of energy. So we put all these breaks in place molecularly. So we've got a whole lot of things that kind of slow our rate of growth so that we don't grow so big that if there is a, a famine, that we're going to be, because we need so many calories, we're going to, we're going to, completely lose that and we're going to lose all of this stored you know stored protein very quickly so we've identified at least four different molecular breaks amp kinase is one but if you take out amp kinase yes if you take out one of the flavors of amp kinase muscle will grow bigger under a loading stress if you do other things if you take out the main one that's activated by endurance exercise it has very little effect on on how big the muscle grows after exercise there are things that we have identified because I told you that loading bypasses the need for the insulin receptor and that first part of the growth factor pathway. Well, when we do a very chronic or really heavy, really fast growth stimulus, what happens is our body feeds back and it actually gets rid of one of the proteins that allows us to activate the growth factor activated pathway for mTOR complex one. And so you decrease this protein IRS1, which is important in insulin signaling. We do that every time we re do resistance exercise, we actually become a little bit insulin resistant for a short period of time. The more we do it, the bigger the stimulus, the longer and the more pronounced that is. And so that's another molecular break because then our food isn't activating our muscle protein synthetic response as well because it can't go in through the insulin pathway. So that's a second molecular break. We've identified a number of these different breaks throughout the body, throughout the muscle, that actually can contribute to this concurrent training effect. AMP kinase is one of them, but it's not the only one. I was reading around mainly, I guess, the AMPK break, how that it kind of acts like a switch. This has come from the original research where they've done it on rodents, mice, etc., and then when they moved it to the, the human body, they found it wasn't as easy. It wasn't quite a switch. It, wasn't as, it was much more complex than they previously thought. What, what, what's the difference between the two? Because I, I wonder if a lot of the original research has led to people thinking, oh, you, you know, concurrent training, that, you know, they can't coexist. Uh, you can't be, you know, big and strong and very fit as well. But obviously we're seeing in sport, a lot of sports require both strength and endurance, and we're seeing some amazing athletes. So uh, it'd be interesting to see where this research has come from and if that's affected the narrative that has uh, been around concurrent training, in, more in the training space rather than the, the research space. Yeah, definitely. I think that that's a, it's a really important point, is that 
we can create conditions in rodents that are not possible to do in humans. I can take a rat and remove two muscles, leave one muscle behind, and within two weeks, that one muscle will have grown about 80% bigger. There's nothing that we can do to our muscle to make an 80% increase in muscle mass over two weeks. It's just not possible. So I can create all of these hyperphysiological stimuli that allow me to see something that maybe plays a role in human, but the role in human is, is proportional to the role in rats. But because we can use these really super physiological stimuli, that means nothing that we could do as people. What we see in a rat as being a big difference, we see in a human as being a small difference. Then what you get into is you get into people who are more sensitive to certain molecular breaks because they either have their diet is different. They have different forms of the proteins that make up the molecular breaks. And so the result is that some people are better able to build muscle, even in the case where you're doing concurrent training, than others who maybe aren't even doing concurrent training. They still are suffering from some of those molecular breaks holding their, holding their ability to adapt back. So there's lots of different variability. There's lots of different variables in humans that we don't see in our rat models or our our rodent models simply because, one, we can produce much bigger physiological stimuli. And two, the rodents are all genetically identical. So we don't see the same variability that we do in a human population. And so those two factors are really, really important. The other factor that becomes very important is their metabolism is much, much faster. The result is that adaptations or limitations, if you have a super fast metabolism and you put on the brake a little bit, that's going to have a big effect on what you see as an outcome. But if you have a slower metabolism and you put on a brake a little bit, it's going to have a lesser effect on the outcome simply because your metabolism isn't going as fast as, as the rodent is. Okay, so there's lots of different reasons why what we see in a rodent doesn't translate one-to-one with what you see in a human, but there's a lot of good data out there. And the data that's probably the best is from Stockholm, from Will Apro and and Eva Blumstadt, who have done really beautiful studies where they do concurrent training. They take muscle biopsies from the people and they can show that when they do really high-level endurance exercise, and then they do um, strength exercise, and they do it this way so that the time since the strength session is the same in both situations. What they can see is when they've done that really high and hard endurance exercise, they can see that they do get more ampikinase activity, they do get less mTOR activity, but again, that's because they're very, very good at what they do. They take the biopsy and they do these incredibly painstaking processes where they under a microscope, they actually tease apart the muscle fibers and they take out all the other stuff. And then what they do is they take those muscle fibers and they use them for their, for their analysis. And when you do those precise measures, the variability between people comes down and the effect size that we see with, with the endurance and strength goes up. And so I think that a lot of what we see in places where we don't see an effect is because it's a little bit too crude a measure. Okay. And so you, you can see these effects, but scientifically, the studies are very, very difficult to do. So the more you move away from the muscle level, the micro level, the more crude the, 
measures are to determine some kind of concurrent training effects. And that's why the research is a bit blurry when it comes to humans. Muscle is a tissue with, with more than 10 cell types in it. Hmm. So if you just take a big clump of muscle and you break it down, what you're going to have is you're going to have vascular cells, nerve cells, you're going to have, you're going to have um, immune cells, you're going to have these stem cells. You've got all of those different cells and each one is maybe doing a different thing. So when the Blumstrand group goes in and separates them and, and Will Apro does this and he's got students who do this, separate out the myofibers, take out all of those other cell types, the myofibers, their response is relatively uniform. When we just take a big group of muscle, muscle includes these other 10 cell types. Now those other 10 cell types that are also responding to the exercise in different ways, that's going to make the signal that we get from those more crude analyses more difficult to get a clean signal from. That makes, that makes perfect. That's a really fascinating area of research. I'm going to check out his work straight away after this. Um, how does being more trained affect these processes? So if I'd gone from untrained three years ago to now being a very actively trained, I trained let's say six to eight times a week. Uh, how does that now influence these, these molecular processes? So the, the easiest way to, to answer this is to look at the existing research. And so I go back to Hickson's first study. And the reason that I always tell the story with Hickson being a power lifter is because when he set up his study, each of the people in his study, they exercised, the endurance exercise was six days a week. The strength exercise was five days a week, and all of the strength exercise was done on the lower body. And they were all, in the strength exercise, they were instructed to lift as much as they could and do as many repetitions as they could. Okay, so that was their strength exercise. Their endurance was three days a week, they were going to run as fast as they could for 30 minutes, then 35 minutes for week two, 40 minutes for week three, and then they're going to maintain that. So they're already running as fast as they can. In cycling, what they were doing, it wasn't just, oh, let's get on the bike and do 70% of VO2 max. It was five minutes of VO2 max, one minute of recovery. Five minutes of VO2 max, one minute of recovery. And he did that six times. So you're looking at the structure of these workouts. You've got 11 workouts a week, 11 to 12 workouts a week. The, the people in the study are exhausted. They're, they're completely... And I did a, a simple analysis calculating how many calories that they were burning in the concurrent training group versus the, the strength alone group. And the difference was, was huge. It's a huge difference. So you contrast that with a lot of the studies where they say, oh, we took people, they, they cycled three days a week at 70% of VO2 max. They lifted three times a week and we did it. And we saw that strength and endurance went up the same. There was no difference between a strength alone group and a strength plus endurance exercise. Or what they'll do is they'll do cycling exercise alone. Well, cycling for a lot of people is a strength exercise for the legs, as well as being an endurance exercise, because it's what we call a motor endurance exercise, which means that the muscle has to act as a motor. So the more muscle you have, the more force you can produce, the better motor you have. So it actually is beneficial to have bigger muscles in your quads if you're a cyclist. So that's not as much of a stimulus to block the types of things that we're talking about here in the concurrent training effect. So having the running component in Hickson's paper was probably really important. 
because there the muscle doesn't work as a motor. It works more like a strut, and it's a very different way of working. And so you've got all of these differences that you see in the workouts that come together. And so when you try and tease out exactly what it is, oh, well, these studies don't find anything and these studies do. If you look at the studies that do, they're always doing more than seven sessions, more than probably nine to 10 sessions a week. Whereas the studies that don't are around six sessions a week. Okay, the intensity of the studies are very different as well. The ones that show an effect, the endurance exercise is a higher intensity. And so now you look to see where this actually would matter to people because for most of us, it doesn't matter. I've got, I go out running and I lift weights. Yeah, when, I, when I'm really lifting heavy, my legs get bigger. And when I increase my mileage, it's like when I've done marathon training, my legs shrink away. And I know this because some of my trousers start fitting very, very differently. So if I take that, I know for myself that if I do a certain amount of endurance work, that my legs are going to get smaller. We have a lot of female athletes who know exactly how much their, their training load can be before their periods start, before they stop menstruating. So what they can do is they can play with that because they're so well attuned to their body that they already see that. And they see those differences that we as scientists come in and, oh, there's a difference here. When you exercise a lot, you have a concurrent training effect or you, you change menarche. So, so all of these things, athletes really understand well, especially elite athletes. And the reason why it's especially elite athletes, they're training 10 plus times a week. The intensity of the training is high. They are constantly tired. And a lot of times they're worried about their body weight. So they're going to not necessarily recover as fully as they need to. When you put all those things together, now we've got this perfect situation, this perfect storm for the concurrent training effect. Because what I told you is you need more protein to activate mTOR to the same degree, but they're taking in less, fewer calories. We, when you do really high intensity work and you activate AMP, all of these things that they're doing in their training are now maximizing the potential to have a concurrent training effect okay that funny this all very nicely leads into one of my uh final questions which i wanted to finish on and that was around how there's uh certainly a movement around i'd say since covid's happened there's definitely accelerated where more people are developing a, a hybrid type of training where they wanting to improve in a sport like weightlifting or powerlifting at the same time as training for a triathlon or maybe even an Ironman. So clearly both sports very far apart from each other also require quite a lot of training if you want to get to a good standard. And people are starting to put some impressive numbers on, not to the point where they're like competing with the elite triathletes, but they are a good triathlon time, but at the same time they're lifting considerably more weight than the triathletes. What would your recommendations be in this instance for someone that did want to train to become a powerlifter and a, a triathlete? Bearing in mind that probably during the year, there'll be sections where they might focus slightly more on triathlon because they've got a race coming up and then they might move towards a powerlifting meet or, or whatever. But what, yeah, what would your recommendations be? It's a bit of a wordy question that I apologize for that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it'd be interesting to see from a practical uh, sense, what would you, what would you recommend for someone who wants to do that? Yeah, so, so there's a couple of really important things. The one thing is we talked about that our strength adaptations are 
potentially negatively impacted by our endurance exercise. But our endurance exercise is actually beneficially affected by our strength exercise. There's two reasons for that. There's one way in which our strength exercise can, can inhibit our endurance performance. And then there's two ways that it's really good for our endurance performance. So let's start with the easy one, which is why our endurance could be bad for our, our strength could strength work could be bad for our endurance. If we add a lot of muscle mass, our endurance activities is to move that mass of our body over a distance. The greater the mass, the greater the energy required to move over that distance. So if you're doing enough strength work to increase your body mass, that's going to increase the energy cost for the exercise, and that's going to potentially decrease some of your performance. Okay, because if you're bigger than the person beside you, but all of your, your VO2 max and your, ener- and your running economy are the same, and all of these things are the same, but you weigh a few kilos more, you're going to be working harder than the person beside you to go the same speed. Okay, and that's just going to, over time, mean that you have a greater stress on your body. So that's the negative component. If you're adding mass, it's going to, you have to then carry that mass. But you're also increasing your strength and power. So what you have to do is you have to figure out whether it's worth it to you. Now, if I increase my, my muscle mass by one pound, so, and my body weight goes up by one pound, I have to get two pounds stronger in order to maintain that same speed that I want to go. One pound to lift it up, one pound to power it forward. So basically, for every pound of muscle or weight I add, I need to get two pounds stronger, as it were. Okay? On a bike, I don't need the same amount because I'm on a device that's holding me up. In the water, I don't need the same amount if I'm doing triathlon. Okay? So there's only really the run that's going to be negatively impacted by, or it's going to have the biggest negative impact. The bike is going to have less of a negative impact, and the swim is going to have very little negative impact by adding that extra muscle mass. Okay, the two good things that's going to happen for your endurance exercise or your endurance training is one is going to decrease the likelihood of injury. So when you lift a heavy weight, you're going to lift that weight, and the the velocity at which you're moving that weight is going to be slow, and that's going to increase your strength of your muscle, and it's going to give you a small decrease in the stiffness of your tendon. And that's going to decrease the likelihood of musculoskeletal injury within that area. In fact, there's a really beautiful meta-analysis that shows that strength training, heavy strength training, decreases the likelihood of musculoskeletal injury by about two-thirds, whereas stretching has zero effect on rate of musculoskeletal injury. So, so that's one component. And, and the other good thing about doing strength exercise is that it seems to increase a lot of the or some of the molecular regulators of endurance. So again, out of Eva's lab in in Stockholm, they did a simple experiment where they had people, I I forget whether it was running or cycling, where they did a big endurance exercise. And then they had them, they had a group of them get off and do heavy leg press, one set of heavy leg press at the end of their endurance session. And what they found is they got double the increase in that molecular target that I had identified in my postdoc in WashU, PGC1-alpha, which is supposed to lead to the adaptation, some of the adaptations of endurance exercise. And so if you stop your strength, your endurance session and you go right into a strength session, you're going to actually get a greater signal for endurance adaptations by doing that strength session. So there's no problem there. So your endurance exercise is actually benefiting from your strength sessions. Okay, so now 
then you got the other side of the story, which is your powerlifting component and your power component of how your power is affected by your endurance. And we've talked about that throughout, which is that your power, your strength and power will decline a little bit. But as you said, if you want to have, if you're doing all the powerlifting, all the strength training, and then all you have to do is dial back your endurance a little bit, you're going to have this big increase in, in strength. I'll give you an example that um, from our very early work, almost, uh, what, 15 plus years ago, when I was in Scotland at University of Dundee, I was doing this work with the English Institute of Sport, and we, I was advising the nutritionists, and we were talking about this. At the time, we thought it was all about the mTOR AMP kinase switch, and, and that AMP kinase is turning off mTOR, so, so it's going to affect muscle growth. And at the time, I had a, a nutritionist from the swim team who had an athlete who was a, a sprint swimmer, and his athlete, his coach, they were trying to gain muscle mass in the upper body. And they'd been working at it for nine months and he dialed in the nutrition and they just couldn't increase muscle mass in the upper body. And this is a national level swimmer, a good swimmer. And so what he did is he took back the little handouts that I gave that talked about how AMP kinase can block mTOR. And he said, coach, when you have the swimmer lifting these three sessions a week, you have him lift and then you have him get right back into the pool immediately after the lift. And this work would suggest that you shouldn't be doing that. So all they did was they took out the three sessions immediately following the strength training. And within about a month and a half, he had added two to three kilos of upper body muscle mass. And over the next three to four years, he had become a, an Olympic finalist. So he'd gone from a national level swimmer to an Olympic finalist simply by doing these small changes that extend the signal a little bit. They can, this contributes to it. He also was a great athlete who was very determined to all of those other things. But the way that we tried to support him with sports science was to say, if we just take out these sessions that are immediately following the strength work, we're going to do all the rest of the sessions, but let's just take out those three. We saw this really big increase in muscle mass very quickly. And again, as a result, he's able to perform at a higher level. You see the same thing with elite rowers. You see the same thing in people who are destined for that concurrent training. Elite rowers are, you know, the guys are six foot six, 245, 250 pounds. They're rowing over 20 hours a week. That's a really hard thing to do, 20 hours of training while maintaining endurance training, while maintaining 240 pound big muscle mass. Their performance is, is directly related to their body weight. The bigger the body weight, the better their performance. So that tells us we need to do those things that we are targeting with concurrent training to maximize their body weight so they can maximize their performance. Keith, that is absolutely amazing. Love the practical uh, story, especially. I didn't know you went to the University of Dundee uh, and worked with the English Institute of Sport. But yeah, amazing practical recommendations there. You know, through storytelling, you can really gain some ideas about different practical ideas you can apply to your programming, especially if you want to do some form of hybrid challenge. So thank you so much. Where can everyone get in contact or see your work? I know I've heard some of your other podcasts that you do with Jake Chura, but is there anything else that you'd recommend anyone else follow or listen to uh, if they're interested in this topic? Well, for, for concurrent training, um, some of the ones that you talk about are important. There's a, a group, there's a good group out of Australia who does a lot of, a lot of good concurrent training research, as I said. And so that's a group 
uh, around uh, Dave Bishop down at, in Melbourne at Victoria. There's a there's the group in Sweden that does a lot of good work. William Apro is is really good for concurrent training ideas. So so those are great. I'm on Twitter at, at Muscle Science. And so people can contact me there. It's a relatively easy way to, to find out about the, the things that we're focused on. Yeah, so, so those are probably the easiest ways. Obviously, the best way is to, is to actually just go onto PubMed and you can search my name, which is spelled in an odd way. So it makes it easier because you don't get as many other people. So my name is B-A-A-R. So again, having lived in Scotland for five years with my own lab with Bars Iron Brew, it was very hard to get people to spell my name right because they always wanted to spell it with the two R's. With two A's and a K, you're going to get all of our research. And then if there's any papers that people are interested in and they're paywalled or whatever, and this goes for everybody, for any paper, just email the, the corresponding author and look, we spend all of our life doing research. It's it's a pleasure when we get those requests for papers because it means that our, the research we're doing is something that people are interested in. So no matter whether it's for something that I've written or something that's in the cancer field or the diabetes field or wherever it is, if there's a paper that, that you can't get because it's, it's behind a paywall, just look at the corresponding author's email, send them an email, and they will get it back to you probably within 24 hours. So, so feel free to do that. And um, yeah. That's the easiest way to, to find out about the, the research in the best possible manner. Mm. Yeah, we'll definitely put all of these links into the show notes. And I, I have to agree with you with that comment regarding whenever you get an email saying, oh, on ResearchGate, someone wants to read your work. Like, that feels great. You know, I really don't think that science, science should be for everyone and shouldn't be stuck behind a paywall. And uh, all the people that are doing the science often aren't paid by the people that are putting those paywalls up so yeah definitely get in contact with uh any uh author regarding these topics but keith thank you so much that was brilliant